staking your cryptocurrency is depositing your cryptocurrency into a smart contract and how you earn staking rewards, which are similar to interest in a few ways. You earn staking re rewards based on how frequently your token verifies the blockchain. You're listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 338 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. What is a staking pool and why would you stake your crypto and what is a rug pull? These are just some of the questions Harrison Dell of Kadena Legal in Sydney will discuss with you in this episode. Staking is relevant for proof-of-stake blockchains. And when you stake your crypto, you essentially contribute it and lock it up somewhere and allow it to verify transactions on the network. And you get staking rewards based on how often your crypto is chosen to verify the network. In practice, all of the cryptocurrency is pulled, all of the coins or tokens are pulled together, and the staking rewards are spread out to all the people who have locked up their cryptocurrency for the sake of the network. And it's not uncommon for these staking rewards to be close to 100%. We've been seeing in recent recent months, we've been seeing millions of percent returns that are potentially offered for staking rewards. The problem with staking rewards is they're often paid in the same cryptocurrency that you stake and you're subject to price fluctuations. That's the difference to interest in that it's completely not stable in some cases. In other cases, you can make lots and lots of money. I just had a flashback and that is, I read somewhere that Bitcoin doesn't allow staking And I kind of wondered why, but now I understand it because because they are focused on proof, proof of work and mining. This proof of stake is completely irrelevant for them. And that's why they don't allow it because it's basically a completely different concept, correct? That's correct. And you do see some products out there where you can stake in air quotes your Bitcoin and other coins that don't actually have staking rewards. Instead, what you're doing in those cases is you're lending them your cryptocurrency and they may earn interest by doing other things with it to get sort of quasi staking. But there is the possibility that Bitcoin will enable staking. The protocol is upgraded occasionally with great, great care, but there is talk about allowing staking on the network, although the exact functionality of that is unknown. So Yeah, at this point, staking is essentially irrelevant for Bitcoin and most proof-of-work tokens. Proof-of-stake network, so POS networks, that's basically just any exchange that allows staking, is correct? So it's about the cryptocurrency itself and whether it's built around a proof-of-stake protocol. So the proof-of-stake is how it verifies the blocks on the blockchain for that blockchain. So, for example, you've got Polygon or Matic the same cryptocurrency, they are a proof of stake blockchain. And if you stake your Matic tokens, you can verify the blockchain. So in this transaction where you, Harrison, give Larry two Bitcoin, if you had staked your Bitcoin, and let's not use Bitcoin because Bitcoin you can't stake. Let's say you and Larry, he wanted to do a transaction in another cryptocurrency. If that 
cryptocurrency had been staked, if you had staked this cryptocurrency, then you wouldn't be able to do this transaction because you basically have given the cryptocurrency to the bank, so to speak. You have given it to the proof-of-stake network, or that's probably not right, but you've given it to somebody else, and for that you're receiving rewards. Yes, exactly. So you've given it to a smart contract is, is probably the best way to think about it. It's locked up. And some proof-of-stake blockchains actually require that you lock it up for a minimum of 60 days before you start receiving rewards and things like that. And that is done to reduce supply in the network. Because if you've got heaps of this token flying around doing next to nothing, then there's a lot of supply, not a lot of demand and the price will, will plummet. But if people need to stake it, essentially they will buy it and then we'll lock it up. And then the people who do need to transact on the network, such as to do other things, not just sending crypto to each other, there's a whole range of other applications, then the people who bought and held it and staked it will, will earn rewards based on how used and how frequently used the network is, if that makes sense. And so the disadvantage of staking is that you can't use it. That's basically the main disadvantage of staking. And I think there's also the risk of a rug pull, correct? If you stake a cryptocurrency that might be slightly nefarious or so, then you can have a rug pull. Actually, no, a rug pull is when your coins are removed from the contract. So it basically means they're taken out of the staking contract again, correct? That's a rug pull. But then you use a rug pull also in a different context. And does rug pull basically just mean you get kicked out? You know, something happens without you wanting it to happen. Yeah. So if I contribute cryptocurrency to a staking pool or liquidity pool or something, then I can, like normally I'm the, only, I'm the only address that can pull it out. Now, there are a range of vulnerabilities in these smart contracts where someone else can pull it out. And because of the nature of blockchain, when it's gone, it's gone. You can't reverse it. You can't get it back. That's the risk in DeFi space. Okay. And when you say they pull it out, does it mean they just pull it out of the staking pool or you mean they pull, they pull the cryptocurrency away from you and it's gone? So they'll, they'll pull it out of the staking pool because when it's staked, you don't own it anymore. It's under a different name. It's I just see. there is an agreement that you can get it back at any time, essentially. So if they pull it out, out of the staking pool, it goes back to you. If you pull it out, but if a nefarious actor were to do so, um, it may pull out the, the staked cryptocurrency to a different address. I see. So that's basically theft. Essentially, it's, it's, it's theft. And why does the system allow that? Because it's a smart contract and anybody can write the smart contract whichever way they want. So if they want to pull a pull rack in there and allow and open a door for theft, then they can. Yes. And, and it did used to happen quite a lot with liquidity pool contracts, which are relatively complex contracts because of how they operate. And someone can drain them by doing specific transactions if the contract allows for it. Now, a lot of those are closed, but as is the nature of anything with computers, there's always innovation, there's new ways to do things. So there will forever be nefarious actors. So mm -hmm. knowing which protocols to trust and which ones not to is really important. And it was just recently that we had a very prominent DeFi protocol, which was called Wonderland Time, where it was where the, the founder was revealed to be a fraudster from Canada who defrauded people allegedly through a cryptocurrency exchange that, that was there naturally that means that people don't trust the network as much as they did before. So this rug pull risk, you don't really run with Ethereum, for example, or you know some well-known cryptocurrencies that everybody knows except me. You don't run that with cryptocurrencies with good reputation. But if you take on more risk and you go into a cryptocurrency or you stake a cryptocurrency that is 
less known and less established, then you run the risk that the smart contract includes some nefarious clauses. Well, there can be, it's more on the smart contracts than the cryptocurrency because you can write a dodgy smart contract for Ethereum. I see. So it's not actually Ethereum that creates these staking pools. It's somebody else. Yeah, that, that's correct. And, and there has been some no very notable occasions where transactions have been reversed for mass hacks or mass changes to a protocol. And often that's called a fork where you might walk away with two different cryptocurrencies. For example, we have Ethereum and we have Ethereum Classic based on a, um, an, an abnormality that happened. I think it was 2017. Yeah. So it's, it's dependent on the smart contract. You can lose any cryptocurrency. There is none that I'm aware of that are fraud resistant. So when you lose cryptocurrency, you either have a capital loss or you have a loss on income, depending on how you are accounting for your cryptocurrency activities. When you have a fork, you just mentioned a fork, then you basically have a new capital asset with a zero cost base if you are on capital. And if you're on income, then you basically just have income without any cost of sales when you sell it, when you sell it. Yes, essentially. And this might be a good opportunity to mention the fact that there are currently, at least last I checked, there were six private rulings in total on cryptocurrency. Uh, most of them are old, you know, a few years old, which is ancient for the space. Um, and there's a few on forking, which is moderately helpful, but it's it's basically, as you say. Yes. So the, the second currency is a new capital asset and has a cost base of zero. If you are an investor. Yes, and it, it doesn't trigger CGT as well. It's just a, the creation of a new asset, really. really. Yeah, it, it, it triggers CGT when you sell this new asset. That's right, yes. Good, so that's the fork. And then the tax treatment of staking is basically on income. So even when you're on capital, the staking rewards you receive are on income, even if the staking rewards are new currency, correct? Yes. So walking about the tax concepts, in, it's income from property because you've, you've owned, you own property. It's like you own a piece of land and you, you receive rent. You own a piece of crypto, a parcel of crypto, you've staked it, you receive income. It comes in and the staking rewards will often be paid in a cryptocurrency. And it's, it's actually a compliance headache because what you need to do is say, well, what's the value of what I received at each moment that I was staking? Now, there are some staking contracts that allow that, that will pay you daily. There are some that pay you every eight hours. There are some that pay you every few seconds. And the compliance on that is an absolute nightmare. You've got software that will do it, but basically shortcuts need to be taken to go, you know, daily average or something like that. And that's part of the issue of cryptocurrency and tax law and where they clash is they just don't work well together on issues like that. I see. So the tax reports you can buy, they struggle with staking because it's just so much data. Yeah, they sometimes do. And, and they no doubt take shortcuts. And what I see is a particularly poor outcome. And, and this is something that I hope the law will eventually address is say I'm staking some cake. So cake is a token that's, that's it's quite large on the Binance smart chain. Staking some cake, and you receive more cake as income. And then what happens is the price of cake goes to zero. So the time before that, you've actually been realizing income and then you have a big capital loss. 
So you're, you're actually stitched up with a tax bill when you can potentially not have the assets behind it to justify it because when it gets lost, it becomes a capital loss because your capital investment is gone. And your argument is basically those gains haven't been realized yet. Let's say you have 10 cakes and let's say there was $100 at the moment, $10 each, and then you're receiving because you staked, you're receiving another two cakes. And so now you need to recognize an income of $20, but then you have these two cakes as well with a cost base of $10 each. And then let's say the value of cakes goes to $40. So then when you sell these two cakes, the cost base was $20. That's what you recognized as ordinary income. You are now selling it for $40. So you have a capital gain of $20 if you are on capital. But if the value of cake goes to zero, then of course you have recognized $20 as ordinary income, even though you have nothing in your hands now. That's right. And, and, and I consider that an unfair outcome under the law. Yeah, and it's unfair because that $20 hasn't been realized yet. Yes, yes, exactly. And I'm unsure how that's going to be addressed, but I am looking forward to Q1, Q2 this year, 2022, because um, there is a lot of talk about cryptocurrency legislation change and what we can do to make it more fair, which needs to be balanced with the fact that we can't make it a more favorable asset class to invest in. Instead, it just has to not send people bankrupt, is kind of my view, in case it all goes south. So the question is basically, how much can the ATO see of your crypto trades? There's data sharing arrangements, there's Austrack, and there's common reporting standards. But I would love to understand to what extent most Australians actually trade on Australian exchanges, because my understanding is the ATO only has data sharing arrangements with Australian exchanges. So if most trade outside of Australia, then the ATO basically doesn't get much data through the data sharing arrangements. Austrack only reports transactions over 10,000K. So if you transfer less than 10,000K at a time, then the ATO doesn't get any info from Austrack either. And the common reporting standards currently don't cover crypto. So there's nothing coming through the uh, CIS either. So my question is, How much does the ATO actually see of crypto trades? I think a lot of people grossly underestimate how much data the ATO can pull if they want to. So let's start with the very first thing, which is Australian-based exchanges. So the few that I work with and know quite well, I've asked them if they have a subdivision 353-10 standing information request from the ATO to provide them with transaction data. And they've all confirmed that, that they do, the ones I've spoken with. I wouldn't be surprised if every single one in this country did. Now, of course, Australian law only has the force of law in Australia and the ATO has a different power to obtain information from offshore. Now, they can't use the force of law to force them to do so. Instead, they have different rules, which are not very helpful for enforcing a Cayman Islands exchange to provide you with transaction data because they'll just not do that. So really, Australian-based exchanges will do it. Now, there are not many offshore exchanges that allow Australian residents to trade on their platform. There are some people set up entities to do that. And that comes with substantial risk. And the reason that comes with substantial risk is however you get your cryptocurrency to that account is likely traceable somewhere. So remembering that the blockchain is a public ledger of everything that's ever happened with that cryptocurrency. 
So there is nothing stopping the ATO running analytics, and I'm sure they will do this at some point in the future. Once they have connected you with a decentralized wallet, there's nothing stopping them saying, well, what has happened in that wallet? Let's have a look. And they can see every single transaction you ever did and run automated software that'll say, here's what your capital gain or loss should approximately be, maybe with a few, a few changes here and there. But if you reported zero in your tax return, you're going to have a bad time. Is it a realistic chance that the ATO would identify the um, taxpayer? Because it's a private key. It's anonymous. Yes, but remembering the rules of um, what the ATO needs to prove, if they see you transferring cryptocurrency from your uh, centralized exchange account to a decentralized wallet, they can see that from their data feeds. No doubt, no doubt. That's actually a fourth one. One is Austrack, where you just outright transfer money from Australia to overseas. But of course, the fourth one is the data feed to the Australian exchanges. If those data feeds then say Harrison withdrew a million dollars from the Australian exchange and transferred it to somewhere else, then yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely traceable. And I've had to burst more than a few people's bubbles when they think that, oh, it's private. It's, it's the opposite of private. It's mm -hmm. literally walking out in broad daylight. And uh, just jumping onto the Austrack point, the $10,000 limit applies to domestic transactions. If you send Australian dollars overseas, even if it's less than $10,000, it will be picked up by Austrack. And reported to the ATO? It's not reported to the ATO as, as such, but the ATO does have access to them. And I know this because I used to work at the ATO in those partnerships. Oh, I see. Okay. So this threshold transaction report, this TTR, threshold transaction report, is that for domestic transactions between banks and then the bank only has to report transactions over 10,000 to the ATO or, you know, in this report to Austrac, whereas Austrac can see everything that goes overseas? Yes. If it's an AUD and it's international, it'll be reported to Austrac. I see. Even if it's 10 cents. I think there's a $1 threshold, but, you know. Okay, good. <laughs> and then the common reporting standards don't cover crypto at the moment. So that is true. But, of course, you first need to get the money into into those countries where you might hide. Yes, that's, that's right. So the, the CRS, and I might roll in FATCO into that bucket as well for our US friends, yes, currently only covers bank accounts because the, these, the, the CRS is intended to capture people who have offshore bank accounts and attempt to hide money. And it's been relatively effective. And even a lot of those, you know, gray listed countries have signed the CRS under intense pressure from, you know, just financial authorities to do so. But yes, crypto is not currently included in that. There is a big push for people to say, hey, we should include crypto as currency. I don't get the point because you're going to start falling into problems like this like the CRS and FATCAR and Austrac will start being interested. I like to think of it what it is, and it's just something different to currency. Most Australians are trading on Australian exchanges, and hence the ATO has data feed arrangements with pretty much all of them based on your limited survey. Then there's Austrac, which basically covers any transaction that goes overseas. Then there are the data feeds from Uh, these Australian exchanges if you decided to withdraw your cash from those Australian exchanges and send it overseas. The only thing that kind of is open at the moment is CIS and FATCO because they don't cover crypto at the moment. Yeah, at the moment. And, and I expect that's going to take a long time just because coordinating international changes like that is 
is very, very hard. Maybe with the exception of fat car, which of course the US can change when they're ready to do so. Now, there is only one method that allows you to transact privately, and that is by mining your own cryptocurrency. But that because that still doesn't that doesn't trigger a data sharing thing, that doesn't trigger Ostrack. But then when you start entering the system, you start leaving footprints everywhere. So the time has really ended for anonymous transactions. There are still some ways to do it, but the ATO is extremely, extremely critical of those. For example, there are mixing services that allow you to obscure your address. The ATO will be very interested on you if they can see your decentralized wallet interacting with a mixer, as well as they'd be very interested if you start buying privacy coins. It just smells bad, as privacy often does. There's nothing illegal about privacy, but it certainly doesn't look good. So these were our first four episodes about crypto. Over the next few episodes, we will take a short detour and cover some other topics and then come back to cryptocurrency to discuss crypto reporting software, common crypto scams and current developments. In the next episode, episode 339, Deborah Anderson, a member of the TPB, the Australian Tax Practitioners Board, will discuss with you to what extent you can run several brands under one registration or several registrations under one brand and a few other questions. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.